Hi everyone, I'm Allison Robertson and I am so excited to be here today. There has been so much going on in the past few months with COVID-19 and what the world has been going through. And me being a solution-focused coach, it has been so difficult for me to understand what is going on and deciphering information and what's the next right step. And I'm asking a million questions and I thought to myself, after many sleepless nights and trying to get the right answers, I thought, you know, I probably know a few people who could give me the correct answers and share it with others. And during these uncertain times, I thought it would be a great moment to sit down with some amazing people that I am so excited and honored to be sitting down with three incredible medical experts, Dr. Mary Toten and otolaryngology and head and neck surgeon for the past 22 years, providing health care in a variety of settings, but including the Native Health Services, and she has her own private practice. Sandy Smith, who is an RN, who has had 46 years of experience in ICU and critical care nursing, in ER and trauma nursing, cardiovascular nursing, cardiovascular clinic, research coordinator, outpatient cardiology nursing, patient and nursing educator, and she's been in a leadership role. And we have Lieutenant Orrin Mayer, PhD, a second year laboratory leadership service fellow in the viral special pathogen branch of the Center for Disease Control. So if these three cannot at least quell my anxiety and answer some of my questions, I don't know who can. So I am thrilled to have the three of you here to give us some straight talk today. So um, the first thing I'd like to do is sort of go to each of you and tell me a little bit about yourselves. And actually, you're not all from, I'm here in Los Angeles, but you're not all from where I'm from. <laughs> so let me start with you, Dr. Mary. Tell me where you're, where you're from, what region you're in, and what you're currently doing. So I'm originally from upstate New York, and I've lived in Alaska for 19 years. I started out at the Native Health Center and then went off into private practice. And so I'm primarily a private practitioner. I do serve in the role of subsection chairman at Providence Hospital for the otolaryngology head and neck department. And that's, you know, I'm a single mom. I have two children. So I've got the the family component and the work component, and then my leadership component that I'm doing right now. Great. Awesome. Thanks for being here. Sandy, tell us about you and where you're from and what you're doing currently. Well, I'm from the Detroit area originally, and I, that's where I am now. I'm in a northern suburb of Detroit. Uh, most of my career has been spent in the critical care areas, ICU, CCU, with some of the ER and level one trauma as well. Over the, I, I also have some research background. I worked with cardiologists in cardiovascular diseases, mostly interventional cardiology. Now I'm working in the city of Detroit, and I work in an ambulatory clinic where we service primarily those that are underserved, the African-American community. Uh, it's a clinic where we really focus on cardiology, but most of our patients have a, quite a variety of comorbidities, which has been a, a real challenge with the COVID-19 situation. I do right. grow children and a couple of dogs that I'm hoping will be quiet while I'm... 
Me too. I'm, I'm hoping the dogs will be quiet too. And I think Mary has the same situation. Orrin, tell us about you, please. Hi. I'm originally from California, born and raised, and moved to Atlanta back in 2005 to start my public health career. I was with CDC from 2005 to 2009, and then I moved up to New York City. I was in New York City for 10 years. Those last 10 years, the, the last few years after focusing on TB research for seven was a multinational HIV project with Columbia University. And so I spent about 40% of the time in Sub-Saharan Africa or Haiti trying to, to foster the ability to test people in their own homes and be able to link them to care. And by the end of it, we linked about 500,000 people throughout the continent to know their HIV status, for them to get linked to care so they could get the treatment they needed and then they could continue to be monitored through their national systems. I came back to CDC in 2019 and I joined the viral special pathogens branch. That's the team that works with Ebola and Marburg and those types of diseases. In November and December of last year, I was in Uganda for the Ebola outbreak and I was running the mobile lab out there and training the people in country as a part of a capacity building so that they could take over the mobile lab when we left and could continue to do their own Ebola testing. Starting since February of this year, I've been deployed for COVID. I was the laboratory subject matter expert in California for the uh, Diamond and Grand Princess cruise ships when they came back to the country for their repatriation and quarantine. Then I went to Ohio for a month to work in long-term care facilities to try to help keep the COVID entry into the facilities and how they would handle COVID once it was there under control. And for the last two months, I've been with the Hopi Nation in Arizona, working with them on their infection prevention and control, working with the Indian Health Service, IHS, with their facility out there, and working tribe-wide to try to implement strategies that are practical in a resource-limited setting that would allow them to still control COVID while being culturally sensitive. Well, I have a, a thousand questions for you that I'm just going to try to just go slow because <laughs> my, my, my first question to all three of you is, first of all, thank you so much for being here. And two questions. First of all, I, I'm, I'm assuming that you all three in, in different ways are feeling an incredible weariness with a lack of disrespect that the medical community seems to be getting with the information that's coming in about COVID and how the, the, the United States is reacting to it, how people are reacting to the shelter in place, how they're reacting to masks and, and, how, and how they're behaving towards the medical community. At least that's me as a lay person, how I'm perceiving it. Granted, I'm living here in California. So um, I feel like there's so much, there's a, a type of backlash that's coming. Um, I would love to get all of your opinions. I do understand, you know, we're going to try to stay away from the political arena, but I do understand it comes down from leadership. But I'm asking you as medical professionals, how are you dealing with that disrespect? And how can we help educate people to understand that this is a health crisis? And how do we, how do we educate people to understand that we need to make this manageable and and we, we're, we need to flatten a curve. We need to help people because people are dying, not just getting sick. Anyone can jump in on that one. <laughs> I'll go first. <laughs> Yo, go, ahead. go ahead, Mary, because I know, I, know, I know you have feelings about this. So, you know, I had to participate in a policy at the hospital on tracheostomy procedures for COVID-positive patients um, or unknown 
COVID status patients at the very early part of the spring. And I also had to make adjustments in my practice, in my office. What am I going to do to make sure that my patients are safe, that my office staff stays safe? And my walk through all of that was to really look at the Academy of Otolaryngology. They're the ones that are assembling all the information and putting it together and making recommendations and then pairing that with what our, our state mandates are and then my own, my own sense around it. And that's, I, I continue to do that. And it has affected my business. I'm at 50% capacity and that's required in order for patients to stay safe. And so that's just kind of how I'm doing it. As far as, you know, I've certainly been part of that in social media and had disagreements with friends regarding studies and what this means and blah, blah, blah. And bottom line is we've never seen this before. So we don't know. Have the messages been mixed? Yep. Because we don't know. And as time passes, we're going to know more. And so I think at this time, I agree. people just need to have some grace around it and do their best to participate in the solution. Because as we've opened up over the summer and we watch people do whatever they want to do, people are getting sick. And that's the proof in the pudding, right? We shut it down. We did great. We opened back up. We're not doing so great. I don't think you need data to, to prove that. So that's just my two cents, I guess. Or do you, do you have a, I mean, it's got to be incredibly frustrating for you considering you are right there in the center of all of this, especially then this is more of a life's work for you uh, dealing with these diseases across the world. How, I mean, how do you deal with, I mean, you must have people asking you questions all the time, especially now or all the, I mean, how, how do you deal with this or what are your thoughts on this? So I think this COVID pandemic has shown two things for public health. The first is that scientists need to be better communicators. It's, it's one thing for us to understand some of the facts and be able to share that information with others and, and describe that information. But if we don't do it in a way that's digestible and understandable and actually influences behavior, it's all useless. And we're really good at talking to other scientists. We're pretty good at talking to doctors and nurses and healthcare staff. But there are a very small number of the people that need to change their behavior. The majority of the population are the ones that actually have to, to change it. And then when you mix this building off of what Mary said, she had some wonderful points that this is new. And this, is, this hasn't happened before. And in reality, this is the first time that the general public is seeing science happen in real time. Usually by the time a disease comes out and a medication or a vaccine happens, it's polished and it's pretty and there's very small incremental changes that need to happen. And so they don't understand that all of this, today it's this is the advice and tomorrow, oh, we learned a new fact and now it's this and the next day it's something else. That's all actually happened with every scientific and medical piece of advice that we have. But usually the public doesn't see all of that happening. They only see it at the very end of the process. So it's polished, it's pretty, but instead what they're seeing exactly what scientists normally see and what doctors and nurses normally see, which is today, this seems like the best practice. Tomorrow, oh, we learned something new. 
and now we want to change our advice. And so the general public goes, oh, they're backtracking. They don't know what they're talking about. And instead, we view it from the scientists and from the health community as this is how it should work. We don't want our ideas to be so entrenched that when we learn new health information, we're not willing to change and advance and make it better. And so it can be frustrating when we see so much resistance to it. Mm. But from the health side, I understand it. I understand from somebody that doesn't necessarily have an education in science, not to say that they're any less or, or anything along those lines, just what they're experts in is different, that what they view what we do when we know it's imperfect, they view it as we don't necessarily know what we're talking about. And so trying to rectify those two ideas is very, very challenging. And that's where we're starting to see that being an effective scientific and health communicator is far more important than necessarily being the person that's in a lab. Because lots of people can do the lab work, but not a lot of people are necessarily able to get out in front of a group of people and convey a message in a way that's understandable enough that actually gets them to change their behavior. That is beautifully put because it's a, what you said struck such a chord in me is that we're watching science in real time, that we're watching it in real time. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating and it's interesting from the science point of view, but we also are respecting the fact that this has real impact on people's lives. There are people that are getting sick, there are people that are dying, there are people that are having lasting effects from COVID even after they recover. And so there's always, it's mixing this wanting to make sure we do it right and wanting to make sure we give the best practices, but also realizing that we don't necessarily have time to perfect every one of our ideas before we start giving the advice. And I'm sure as Mary was saying, she's had to start modifying some of the practices for her office. And I'm sure Sandy has seen the same thing in the facilities she work in, where one day the policy is A, and then the next day you switch it to B because that's the newest advice. But two days later, you have to switch it to C but if you had waited one more day, you would have gotten C sooner, but you can't necessarily just wait because this is negatively impacting people's lives and families, adults, children, everything. And so we are having to make decisions as quickly as possible, but also as responsibly as possible. And that can look really messy to the general public. And trying to make sure that we are, we are constantly reassuring the public that your best interests are what we are focused on. And we are not gonna ask you to do something that we think is unsafe. But that also doesn't mean that we are always going to get it right. And as soon as we know we don't have something right, we will focus all our energy on making it right and making it better and making it safer. Sandy, what is your feelings on, on what both Mary and Oren have said? I, I totally agree with both of what they said. And, and, and Oren, one of the things that struck me is about the education part of it and how we, as healthcare professionals, as yourself, a scientist, don't always communicate or we haven't had to communicate in real time. You know, I was taught the nursing process, which is, you know, you you know, you evaluate, you implement, and then you draw back and, and reevaluate and make those changes. And you're absolutely correct. When the public isn't used to us seeing us do it, we know and practice evidence-based medicine. When the evidence keeps changing or there's a big unknown out there, it's 
all those changes have to be done in real time. One of the things that I, I also want to bring up is, and I find this very problematic, is that we told people that it was time to wear masks. Now, every state has been left on their to their own fruition to decide whether or not they're going to mandate that. But nobody has talked to the people about how they do that. And a point that, that I'm always sort of interjecting when I'm at the grocery store, even when I'm at work, is for people that are not wearing them correctly, and it's not their fault. So I see people wearing them under their nose. And finally, I've taken it upon myself to try to educate people and not being critical. I told a woman who was a cashier, I said, I, I, would you please pull your mask up over your nose? And she said, well, it doesn't stay up. And I said, then, then we need to get you a mask that stays up. And I think this was at our Kroger store, which is our grocery store chain, is I actually talked to the manager and I said to him, without being disrespectful and without criticizing you, because I know this is so new to all of you, I'm used to wearing a mask at various times in my career. You're not. But it's not a one-size-fits-all. You need to look at your employees and you need to provide them with the equipment to do their job and keep them safe and others safe by giving them masks. And it was true that they gave them a cloth mask that would fit a large gentleman, but not necessarily a woman. And I spoke to them also about if you had a cold and you were covering your mouth or your nose because you were blowing your nose or you had you know, sinus drainage, the, the first thing you would do is cover your nose. And yet I see people walking around without their nose covered, but they don't necessarily know. A woman said to me, oh, I thought as long as I had it over my mouth, I was fine. And so there's a whole process out there that we that I think has been neglected. Yes, people should wear masks, but for people that have never worn masks before, it's a very simple thing that we need to be as healthcare professionals, I think, and scientists as educating people. And I think it all came out so fast that they, as different corporations and industries started mandating mask wearing, they didn't think about the logistics of it. Are we giving these people what they need to do their job? And are we teaching them even how to take a mask off? I find them gloves and masks in, in the parking lot, you know, laying on the floor or on the ground. I just think there's a lot of very simple information that we just assume that everybody knew because we know what to do with it. And so that's bothered me, and I can't tell you how many times I've asked people politely, could you put your mask up over your nose? I've had to tell my patients that. And, and it's a simple thing, and yet it's, we seem to have missed it in the education of the public, in my opinion, anyway. Well, I, I, I agree. Now, we're on the subject of masks and, and how to keep people safe. As individuals, aside from masks, social distancing, and hand washing. I mean, is that, is that all we can do as individuals? What else, what else can we do? Because I know someone like myself who lives in a multi-generational household with my parents are over 75. My father is, that's another thing. What is it when someone's system is compromised? What, do, what is that word? What is the word we use? Medical team, what do I call that? 
immunosuppressed. Immunosuppressed. Or- okay. So I, I'm living with, with two people like that. I have teenagers. So what is, what is the next right thing for me? I mean, do I go out into the world? Do I, you know, my children are not going back to school at this time. I don't know what my next step is. And I know there are lots of people in my situation. What is the next step? Their father lives on, my children's father lives on the East Coast. I live on the West Coast. Do I put them on a plane? If I do put them on a plane, when they come back, how do I put them back in with their grandparents who... You know, I'm not allowing them to go out of the house. I don't know what the next right step is. And I don't know who to ask. And I don't know what information is correct. So I would love all of your attempt at what's what's next. You know, how do we do this? And I don't want to keep my parents in a bubble, but I truly am. (laughs) Um, So for me, I don't see anybody. I just don't socialize. I don't. I missed a wedding today because I'm just not going to do it. We've had a horrible week of numbers. And so I'm deciding how I'm keeping my bubble. And, and my office staff, we've had that honest conversation about keeping your bubble safe. Because if they're out in bars and restaurants, then those are really what's transmitting things now. So I've made the choice that I'm going to just be really careful. I go to the store if I do really early in the morning. I mean, I've had to, I've, I've adjusted a lot of things. The flying, once I travel with my daughter to get her to school, I'm done. Until this is tapped down, I'm just, there's no need to go anywhere. And um, I did travel this summer and I took my kids to a ranch in Idaho. It's our yearly thing. And I almost canceled it. And I'm really glad we did it because there's a balance to your mental health here too. But I had to self-isolate and take two tests before I showed up at work. So I took a two-week, one-week vacation. That's and until until things change and they're going mm-hmm. to change. That's kind of where I'm at right now. Until things are better, or we have another tool in our toolbox to help protect us, like a vaccine. Orn. So I, I think there isn't necessarily just a right answer to this. There's there's a whole lot of gray, and it's dependent on a lot of different factors. What is the, as Mary was saying, the numbers have been horrible where she is. And that definitely lends into how you're going to behave and interact with your community around you. And that's how we try to give advice for reopening schools or sports or daycare or any number of of items. My, one of the biggest advice that I try to give when I'm training this is at the end of the day, no matter what the city, state, county, country, hospital, whatever they put out there as their guidance, at the end of the day, you are really in charge of your own safety. Nobody else can. They might say it's safe to do A, B, and C, but if you're not comfortable, so one of the things I advise is trust your gut. If something doesn't Mm. feel comfortable, don't do it. And as Mary was saying, you know, it was, she was, she was stating that there's the balance with the mental health and that it was, it was worthwhile for her family to partake in an activity that did involve some travel it involved some interactions, but also took as many precautions as she needed to both when she went and when she came back so that she could keep those in her life safe. That's right. the advice we have. So you, you, know, you have teenagers, which are the lower risk for severe illness that want social and need that for mental health. You balance that against your parents that are also sharing that same space that are at high risk for severe disease and 
to weigh the two of those is very challenging. Couple of, yeah. A couple of the ways around that are, and this has been, as, as we're starting to learn more about the disease, is you expand that social bubble. And by expanding it is, it's you and maybe a couple neighbors. And all of you are really good about the social isolation. And I use the social isolation because there's disease isolation where you've actually been infected and you are now isolating yourself to spread, not spread to others. But also the mm -hmm. social isolation where, as you're doing, you're staying in your house and you're not going out that if, if you know, and this involves a level of trust where you're with other families or other households that are also doing a good job of that, then after the, about the two week mark, if you've all been doing it, then it's relative, the, the risk goes down for you to now interact with those families. And those, the, the ones that have to go shopping, you limit it to only one or two people that would go shopping that you know will be responsible, social distance, wear a mask, wash their hands. And so you're limiting the number of people within your bubble that are going out and interacting with the world. And so you can expand the size of your bubble without necessarily expanding the risk. But at the end of the day, I mean, if you're really concerned about your parents, then that has to be a reality that you respect. And regardless right. of whether or not I'm saying it, CDC is saying it, the county is saying it, it is safe to do it. If you're worried and it makes you and them uncomfortable, then, then that's what you do. And that's how you, that, those are the activities that you need to take. And so it sounds like you're doing everything right. And it sounds like the majority of people are trying to do the right thing, but no one's perfect. Everyone's gonna slip up, everyone, they're gonna go get, I can tell you when I came back from a deployment, I went out to get some takeout food. I had just been craving food, this, I've been craving takeout Chinese, craving it. So we went to a place that, that my, my wife and I really enjoy. And we walked inside and I can tell you, it was if nobody realized there was a pandemic going on. Not wearing masks, not social distancing, people hanging around. And my wife could just sense that I was getting angrier and angrier and angrier while we were there. And by the time we picked up the food and left, she looked at me, she goes, we can't really go out to places in public like that, can we? Even to just pick up, take out food. And I, yeah. yeah. And so part of, what I've had to do, and I've talked about this level of comfort, is I also have to keep myself out of those situations. Ones where I can be in control and I'm more comfortable with, I, I do have friends and we do get together and we sit outside on a deck and we all stay far apart from each other, but it gives us this, this social time that we need together. As opposed to these other people that are going into a restaurant, all hanging out with people that they haven't seen in a week or two and they're just mixing people right and left. That I'm not willing to do. So I, I, unfortunately, there isn't a right answer. Instead, it's taking in all this information and doing all those safe practices. But at the end of the day, that social distancing, the mask wearing and the hand hygiene and, and good, good respiratory etiquette, coughing into a tissue or coughing into your elbow, those are gonna be the most immediate protective items and activities that you can do. And then everything you do after that that expands it will increase risk. And you just have to be a judge of how much of that increase are you comfortable with. Great. Great. Sandy? I definitely agree with you. Um, and, and I'm in a unique situation of this within this group is that I'm almost 70. I'm still working. I work two days a week. And I'm working with a very a group within a hotspot, which is the city of Detroit. So I'm very, very much aware of 
my own bubble within my family, but also my patients as well, because I'm a healthy 68 year old, but I have a lot of patients that are a lot younger who do have a lot of comorbidities. And I think we have taken extraordinary precautions. My patients coming in are not supposed to be COVID positive. That's not necessarily true. I know they mean well, but they're all coming in with shortness of breath, with a cough. Again, we don't know at that point if they haven't been tested, whether it's cardiac in origin or whether you know they may be, have COVID. So we have to treat every single person as if they do. And I think that's kind of how I live my life. I basically treat everyone that I'm around, whether I go to the grocery store, whether I'm at work, uh, as if they or myself is infected. And I social distance. I, at work, I wear probably more than what I have to wear. I wear a N95 mask. I wear a regular mask. I wear a face shield, surgical hat, and gown. It's a very small area. There's no way for us to distance each, ourselves from each other. So I do that not only to protect myself, but to protect my patient population as well. And I don't do anything either. I basically have put myself in a bubble, stayed in the house, do things around the house, because I really, I don't want to be put in a position where I could infect my family, or again, my patients who are at very, very high risk. And I think this is important. Like, I, I love everything that you're saying. I love the reflection back. I, I love the encouragement. I love the listen to your gut if it doesn't feel right. But I think it's important for people to hear what you're doing is a good thing. I think like being in isolation or slowly expanding step by step, don't rush out. I think people need that encouragement to hear like, it's okay. This is not something that we need to rush back into a little bit at a time. Or like you said, Orn, if you're feeling angry somewhere, that's probably your check-in, not too fast. Or Mary, hey, weigh it against your mental health. If you need that time, it, it, you might need to take double the amount of time. I think, that's, I think this is what people need to hear. I 100% feel with the schools, the kids going back to school, we need to move slowly. And I also think that everybody is different based on where you're, where you're living. Check in with your numbers, check in with your city, see what's happening around you. You know, not everybody is in Los Angeles or Detroit or a major city. You know, if you're not in a, in an area, you know, God willing, that isn't expanding like we are, then yeah, your, your environment is completely different. I do want to ask a question. How do you feel this is impacting two things? One is, and you can take either question or both. How do you feel this is impacting people psychologically, uh, the anxiety, their mental well-being? Um, I, I can't imagine people that are either testing positive for COVID, uh, what that's doing, either the, the ones that aren't getting sick that are maybe coming up, you know, um, showing no symptoms, or people, and how are people who have maybe not gotten as sick, what are some of the, the things that they're living with uh, post-COVID? That, that people are unaware of. So like, tell me both or, or, or either, like what, what's the mental and the anxiety that people, I've heard, I've heard people that have tested positive for COVID that the anxiety is quite off the charts. 
Well, I think a lot of people don't. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Mary. I'm probably going to pass on that answer because I don't really know the answer to that. Go ahead. I, I've had a lot of, I, I've come in contact with people who have had uh, the virus, have been moderately sick, who were healthy individuals. And I think this is the thing that people always think that, well, it's just the the people with comorbidities that are going to get the sickest or the elderly that are going to get the sickest or someone with other health issues. And, it, and it, it's too unpredictable. We just don't know. Yes, we know that there's a certain percentage that have a higher risk because of A, B, or C. But I have a close friend that I work with who is has done 50 marathons in 50 different countries over the past 10 years. He's in, you know, in excellent shape. He got the virus back in March. He wasn't that sick. He can't run. He has been impacted. His lungs have been impacted. The thing that I think that is frustrating for me is that the people that aren't taking this seriously enough to use masks or to use to socially distance because they look at themselves and say, I'm healthy. I, you know, if I get it, I get it a little, I get a little sick. No, we don't know the long lasting impacts from this. And the idea that, well, if I get sick enough, they'll put me on a breathing machine and I'll be fine. And both of you, uh, Mary and Warren, you both know that that is just not the way it is. That, you know, being intubated on a ventilator has so many more consequences and so many more problems than we can even talk about here, that it's not just a given that you're going to be extubated and be better and live your life. And I think that's the thing that I've been frustrated with in trying to relay my concerns to other people is that we just don't know. I could be affected. I could have it and not have any symptoms at all. And someone, you know, uh, 20, 30 years younger than I am, uh, healthier than I am could be impacted in a, in a much worse way. And that's the frustration. I just want to add something about the psychological. I think that is the thing that is probably becoming, tipping the balance for a lot of people that I've spoken to. It's like, I can't deal with this anymore. I don't want to stay in the house anymore. I don't, I, I have to get out and do things. And I think that's the thing that we somehow have to find a balance so that people don't just take risks and jump out there and go to parties and and everything and you just give it all up because they they just can't deal with it anymore and i've talked to a lot of people who feel that way if i can if i can build off that sandy that was a, a fantastic answer from the clinical side i'll talk a little bit more about the psychological for even those that are not affected we are definitely dealing with with what we call COVID fatigue or quarantine fatigue. And it, it absolutely takes its toll being stuck at home and being isolated. Even people that the self-described introverts that have been saying, oh, I've been preparing for this my whole life, being at home for weeks or months at a time, I couldn't be happier. And we even, yeah. even people that identify with that, when you talk to them, even they start craving some kind of interaction because Introverted doesn't necessarily mean you don't want to interact with other people. It just means that it takes some energy to do it, but it doesn't mean you don't need it. And so the, the resiliency to COVID 
is really important. And Alison, I, I, I really think you hit the nail on the head when you said people need the encouragement that they're doing the right thing. And I think sometimes we lack on that where, especially when you have communities that say, oh, I've been staying at home for weeks or for months, I've been missing out on all these and the numbers aren't getting any better. Why am I putting myself through this if I'm just as likely to get it if not? And I think we need to continue Correct. to encourage them that we look, we know this is hard. We know what you're doing is a huge sacrifice financially, socially, mentally, emotionally, for some people spiritually. It's hard and we recognize that. And I think as public health scientists and as public health communicators, we spend a lot of time telling them what they should be doing, but not necessarily a lot of the time being the cheerleader that what you're doing is good and it's necessary. And even though there might be a bleak outlook overall, within your bubble or your community, you've protected yourself. And, and trying to deal with this, this COVID fatigue and just being emotionally tired is hard. And so we do advocate trying to do items that, that build resiliency. You're somebody that exercises, exercise, learn a new language, learn a new skill, but also recognizing that for some people, it's fine that they don't do any of those things that sometimes it's just enough that they get on a Zoom call and talk to people. And that's been yes. so, I, I do think, and, and I do see it on my Facebook page and others, if you're not taking advantage of being stuck at home, you're just wasting your time. You're wasting this quarantine. But That's unfair. But this is emotionally impactful to people and it's traumatic. And to ask everybody to react the same way is not reasonable. So just picking what you can do to be resilient and focusing on that and continuously encouraging people that you're doing the right thing and it's important, we need to keep that up. I also think to build on what you just said, Orrin, is that a couple of things. One is, is to remind people that really delay your instant gratification right now, like because you are a part of a greater good, that all of us are a part of this. This is not something that is just impacting me or just impacting you, that we are all a part of something to end this. We all have a part in it. And I think that's something that no one understands. This isn't, we're not raising money for a charity. We're not raising, you know, this isn't, let's all try to do something. We are all a part of this, truly. And I also think what we had said in the beginning, we've never been here before. We, we don't have any history. We don't have anything to compare it to. And we don't know where we're going with this. And like you said, every day it's changing and we will do the next best thing. So I think the best thing is to keep as medical professional and as lay people is to keep encouraging people. That's great what you're doing. Instead of, I feel like there's been a turn where people are critical to one another and they're very, they're getting a little mean spirited and a little judgmental about it. Instead of saying like, hang on, maybe like Sandy said, someone maybe just doesn't know, right? You just maybe don't know or how to expand the bubble, or what to do. So um, I, I really do appreciate that, and I think that's what needs to be highlighted and, and emphasized now. Now, I, I have a, a question for you uh, all. This is not like the chicken pox, where if you have the chicken pox, and once you have them, you're most likely never gonna get the chicken pox again, correct? <laughs> it's like, you know, you have a chicken pox party and your kids, no one's getting the chicken pox again. This, as far as we know, what the what we're evidence is showing us is that if you get the virus, you could get it again. 
until there is a vaccination. Is that correct? And if you do get COVID, are you in any way immune to it for a time period or, or not? I'm asking, I don't know. What is the information? So currently, from everything that we've seen on the research side, we don't know the answer to that. We don't Great. know if, the, if when people seem to get reinfected, if it's a reinfection or if they didn't clear their original infection. And so because we don't know that, we do definitely emphasize that just because you've had it, you should not continue to act as if you're safe and that you can't get it again. Additionally, while there is a lot of evidence that there are some protective or there is a protective response from your immune system, we also mm -hmm. don't seem to know how long it lasts. And we have seen with SARS and a little bit with MERS, two of the other, co or two of the other coronavirus diseases that are able to infect humans, that you don't necessarily get permanent immunity, but you get sh you got short-term protection. Now, whether or not that is going to exist for COVID-19, we don't know. We don't know if, if you've had it, maybe if you get it again, you will not become symptomatic, but maybe you could still spread it to other people. Or maybe once you've had it for three to four months, you can't get it again, but after that, you could be reinfected. We don't know that information yet. And so our advice is if you've had it and if you've recovered from it, to continue to do with exactly what Sandy was saying with her patients, continue to act as if everybody has COVID, take the precautions as if you're always around people that have COVID and take the precautions you yourself would take so that you wouldn't spread COVID to somebody else. So you, you don't wear the mask to protect yourself, you wear the mask to protect those around you. And so you would do those same activities because you hit it on the head. We don't know the answer to this yet, and we're still trying to work through those details. Right. Okay. Okay. Um, and testing. When you're testing, and this is another question I have. You know, I'm, my background is in the entertainment industry. Okay? The entertainment industry is starting to open back up. And I just heard that one of the TV shows is opening back up, and said show said, oh, but it's all, it's all good. The actors are going to wear masks in between takes and then they're going to take the masks off and do the scene. And if you're cast on the show, you will be tested two days before you come onto the show. Now, if nobody wants to answer this question, I understand. That sounded crazy to me that I'm going to be doing my life. Now, it, I'm the perfect person to do this because I'm staying here in my house. but. So technically what they would say is I would be tested today on Friday and be on the set on Monday. So is that, are you clear for COVID? Are you saying I'm clear for COVID? So if I'm tested on a Friday is 48 hours. So I say I'm not, that doesn't mean I can't be infected on Saturday and Sunday. Is that correct? I'm just, I'm asking for the protocol. Mary, is that correct? I mean, how does that work? How do you do that with surgery? How does this work? I don't understand. That doesn't seem safe to me. Maybe I'm not educated enough. The way to be the most safe about that is until you know your COVID status, you don't step outside your bubble while you're waiting for that result. So that, so, so the entertainment industry would need to ask you to say, once you're tested, you need to stay inside your bubble. Right. But, you know, for our surgery patients uh, that are coming in for elective surgeries, they have to get tested 72 hours prior. Uh, they're using a rapid test that Providence Hospital is 
providing. And, you know, we're going to see what that, how that plays out because if they're not protecting themselves and they do something where they're exposed in those, between those two times, it's imperfect. It's just, it really is imperfect. I think. And, and okay. And, but then if everyone is technically safe on a, say a set or maybe a, a sports team, right? So the, the masks again are just precautionary, right? But if, so you would be like, so if, if a family or a cast, the, again, the masks are precautionary because you would technically say everyone is not positive. Am, am I, am I kind of, am I asking that correctly? So again, the mask would just be precautionary because you would say everyone's in the same bubble. So do you suggest if people are in the same bubble to continue to wear masks or is that just a, a gut reaction? So I guess my thought process around that is if you were going to have a production, you create a bubble in that production. So that's your family. And you mm -hmm. would behave in the same way that you would keep your own family safe. That's kind of how I see it. And that's hard to do. But if they, you know, the sports teams are having outbreaks. And I would love to understand how they're forming their bubbles. So all it takes is one person to come on set with COVID and a lot of people are going to get it. So again learning as we go. I'm always reminded back when, and Orin, I'm most likely older than you are, but certainly you can speak to this as well. But in the very beginning of the AIDS epidemic back in the 80s, I worked in the ICU and there was so much we didn't know. I mean, if you got somebody's saliva, if you got, you know, a needle point, uh, if you poked yourself with a needle, there were all these different ideas of how people could get the HIV virus. And a lot of it was just a learning curve back then. I mean, I had patients that said no one had touched them for months because they were afraid of just touching them would get it. And I think in some ways we are still a bit in that learning curve with this virus as well. And Lauren, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but we still aren't totally aware of how much of a viral load you need to get to become infected. Or, you know, in the very beginning, we were I was spraying all my groceries with bleach water before I even brought them in the house. And then they said, that's not necessary. And yet just when we get to a point where we think, okay, we have this kind of figured out, half the sports, that 15 members of the Marlin, Florida Marlins test positive. And I think, I think we're still in that learning curve of not knowing exactly how quickly it's transmitted. I mean, we know how, but we don't really know at what point how much virus has to be in the air or how much of their, they're doing all sorts of studies. And again, you know, I, I'm not the expert in that, but it, it's so much of a learning curve to, again, and, and as, as Oren mentioned, we are learning in real time. It's not like we learned something and then now we're, everything's being passed on to the public. It's a real time learning situation. And so sometimes we don't know the answer to those questions of how safe is it to do certain activities. I think it, thank you, Sandy. I think that's, that's a really accurate portrayal. I think one of, one of the misnomers in the understanding for COVID is that people think that 
testing is the end all be all of being able to control the infection. And what really needs to be understood is testing is one component, just like wearing a mask or just like washing your hands. To give an example of that, you were saying, you know, if you get Allison, that if you get tested on Friday, you're really good Saturday and Sunday, you can go on Monday. So maybe the masks aren't necessary within that bubble. But we know that it can take a few days for you to convert from negative to positive on a test. So on Thursday, you have become infected. They test you on Friday. Your test comes back Saturday, Sunday. You're negative. You're asymptomatic. You come to the set on Monday, but now you're infected. And so right. all you're relying on is testing. You're going to fall through the cracks. But if when you come to the set, if you're asymptomatic and everybody continues to wear masks and everybody continues to do hand hygiene and limits their interactions, you're going to continue to drive down the, the numbers. And Mary hit the nail on the head when she said, it's an imperfect system. If testing was perfect, then we could rely on it, but we can. And that's not necessarily even the best test in the world still will have delays from when somebody's infected to when they will turn the test positive. HIV is a wonderful example of that. HIV tests are so good now, so incredibly good now. And yet, if you are somebody that thinks that they've been exposed to HIV, you have to get tested and then come back six weeks to three months later to get tested again, even on those re really, really positive, I'm, I'm miss saying that, even on these tests that are very sensitive and very accurate, the biology of the disease necessitates you coming back to getting tested again. So COVID being an imperfect system and the tests are still being modified and still being advanced, that there are definitely ways that people can fall through the gaps. And so relying only on testing as your main control method, you're going to miss people and you will spread infection. But if you incorporate testing into a larger picture of mitigation steps, the washing the hands, the social distancing, the wearing a mask, you incorporate it all in there that if people do fall through the cracks that way, they are still doing a positive job on trying to protect other people they may be around if they don't know that they've been infected. That's a great, that, that actually puts it all in to such perspective to, that helps everyone understand that it's, it's a major, major pieces to the puzzle. This is great. I'm so appreciative to this, and I'm 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 thrilled that you all three were here. To I mean, I feel like I had a, a personal session with all three of you, and I can't wait for everyone to hear this information. Before I close out, I'm eternally grateful for all of your expertise and your wisdom. And the light bulb went off for me when Orrin said that we are having science exposed to us in real time and it isn't all in the pretty package and the, how to keep your bubble and expand it and how to keep encouraging people. And, and now when I hear that the baseball teams are going back and the entertainment industry is opening up, now I'm not as angry <laughs> when I see that it, that it's, it can open as long as everybody has all the pieces moving at the same time. So I'm so appreciative of that. And as we close, I would love it, and I don't even care if it's something simple, I would love it if you would leave everybody with something that you wish they would do as we move forward. To keep going, or a reminder, even if it's something you've already said, or something you wish for um, our country as we stay strong and stay safe. 
Mary, would you start us off? This has gone over in my head a lot. You'll probably have to edit this. But there's the united we stand, divided we fall. And I can't think of any time in the history of my life that this is more pertinent. I think if we can all get on the same page, our country would do better. And if we continue to stay on opposite ends, it's just gonna be a lot longer and a lot harder. And I know it's hard, it's hard for everybody. And, you know, chin up. Get up, stick together. Keep your eyes on the stars and, you know, we can do this. Okay. Agreed. Sandy? The same thoughts as Mary. I also feel just practice kindness uh, instead of attacking one another and uh, finding fault in so much of what's going on. Uh, just kindness and respect. I think that's what I'd like to see people do is understand that we have to protect each other. And in order to do that, we need to care about each other. We need to practice kindness. When you don't wear a mask or don't social distance or don't wash your hands because you think that your freedoms are being violated, you have to remember that you may make the, be the difference between somebody's mother, father, sister, brother, child that you know nothing about you may be the person that makes the difference, whether they become ill, whether they become ill enough to, to die, whether they end up on a ventilator, any of those things. It's not about taking away freedoms. It's about caring for one another. And it is united we stand. We have to, we're in this together. And instead of looking each at each other as in an adversarial way, but to look at each other is that we're a team of humanity. We're a team of humanity that we need to bond together and care about one another. Lauren? When I was out on Hopi, somebody had a sign in front of their home that said, standing together six feet apart. Mm. And that, mm. that really resonated because it's this idea of having this united front and knowing what the right action is to do and being told it and wanting to support your neighbors and your family and your friends and your community, but in using that embodying what you're being told is the best practice. My big reminder would be to the general public is we are just like you. We are people, we all know people that have been infected with COVID. We've all known somebody or know somebody that knows somebody that's lost to COVID and we are, we are going through this. We are isolating like you, we are social distancing like you, we wear masks because we wanna protect those that are around us. And so we know that it doesn't always paint this pretty picture as we're moving forward and that we are changing the advice. But every time we do one of those changes, it's because we've learned something new and we're trying to incorporate that into keeping you even safer. And so that would be my message to the public is, you know, stand together those six feet apart. We're all in this together and just keep up the good work. And if you haven't been doing what you were supposed to do before, it's not too late to start now. Absolutely. Thank you guys so much. This was so awesome. 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 Thank you. Thank you for having Thank me. Thank you.